You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined by Sexy Irish Sean. Richard is in the closet this week, and in, in his place, we have Willem Delventhal of the Indie Game Academy, and uh, we're, we're going to talk about uh, some fun stuff, but, uh, you know, Sean and I have been exploring and working on marketing video games on Steam for a long time. There's a lot of crossover between Kickstarter and Steam. And uh, honestly, it just feels like another crowdfunding platform for indie designers. And we got our first client, Steam client. Oh, yeah, we did. We did. (laughs) So, but first things first, let's get into news. And now it's time for Nerd News. Sean, you had an interesting thing happen to you this week. Yeah, so I got banned. Well, technically not banned. My account got restricted, which is almost worse because it means I can still look at all the accounts, but I can't make any changes. So it's yeah, like a slap Facebook, in the face. Yeah. yeah, on Facebook. So I have no idea why this is the case. I can only speculate. Uh, we had a client who ran into some issues and they, they were talking to a rep and it possibly could have been because you know it was escalated at some point and then they just kind of banned me out of principle because it's like, oh, we don't know what's happening. So we're, just, we're, just, we're just restricted. <laughs> but then it restricts me from all like 20 plus accounts that I'm managing. I didn't freak out. I think I remain pretty calm. I did have other accounts, but they didn't work. They got instantly banned as well. Because oh so, you have to verify your ID. So unless I, like, I create a fake ID, then that's not happening. So... I was able to use my wife's account. She reactivated her account. And so that's what that's what I had to do to get back on the Facebook bandwagon. So um, that's what I'm currently using at the moment. I hope my account gets uh, resolved shortly. But um, I don't see so it's officially a, officially a family business then. She's been written yeah. in. Yeah, it's funny because we have the same initials. So I just put like SB. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, cool. I, um, this happened to me actually, uh, I want to say about two years ago. And at the time, it was just me by myself. I was marketing, I think, four or five projects. And I remember I just started marketing this one, uh, this one company's project who was very, they wanted to be very involved. And I got, I got my account restricted. And that was because Facebook thought I was a cyber terrorist. And <laughs> um, it was huh. an interesting story on its own. Basically, Legions of Steel was a, a game that we were marketing for Marco Pakoda of Raybox games and it's a miniatures war game, but mm. Legion is a cyber terrorist hacker group. Mm. And if you, if you play with a PlayStation, you would know all about that. <laughs> yeah. So they told me that I was speaking positively about um, uh. organized crime and they banned or they restricted me from advertising because my ads were all about Legions of Steel. Like, you know, take your legions and hack the Facebook or something. I don't know. It's funny that you say that. I, I at one point got uh, one of my games got banned from Google for being terrorist content. Wow. Um, and it was a it was a little mobile game that I had made during a game jam, which I just to be but I'm going to describe the idea here in a second. But before I get there, you know, I can understand maybe why they did this. And I'm, and I'm so sorry, everybody wouldn't make this game anymore. But it was uh, the theme for the jam was sacrifices must be made. So uh, the game idea was basically Fruit Ninja, where you are cutting peasants out of the air to cull the population so your medieval kingdom can survive. <laughs> and, and Google didn't like that. 
<laughs> Apple, Apple accepted it. It's still live on iOS. Apple's okay with that. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So it's, it's just funny how some of that happens. Yeah. But for me at the time, I had no backups. I was the only, in essence, I was the only admin for, for our company. Mm. And I was entirely locked out of the account. I could not do Oof. anything. And it took me 48 hours. But the only way I finally, I finally managed to get to um, the right place. And I had to issue a thorough apology for mm. advocating for cyber terrorism. And <laughs> which was stupid could be read because it. I was not, <laughs> you know, and, but they unlock unblocked the account. It made it to a real person. And they were like, Oh, he's sorry for what he's done. And you know, they, they're not, I don't think they're paid enough to think, you know, very deeply into it, or maybe they just get so many requests that they have to handle things in a manner. That's total terrible customer service. But yeah, do you know, it's, it's super common because when trying to find a solution, I, would, I was like going on YouTube and people have the exact same issue. I had no warning, just they open their ad account one day and they're restricted. And these videos have hundreds of thousands of views with, you know, thousands of comments. So it's a very common practice. Yep. What I found was a template that you can use. So when you, when you appeal, you can write a message and I want to read it out for you because it shows you the kind of groveling you have to do to try to get your account back. I try to say this with a straight face. I tried to be, I did tame it down. It was worse. I, I try to make it as sincere as possible, but still kind of like keeping the, the suck up there. But I'm going to try to read this with a straight face. So here it goes. <clears throat> Thank you for taking the time to read this today. I hope I am correct in stating that the core values that matter are empathy, diligence, and perseverance because I will do my best to apply these aspects in my message today. My name is Sean, and on a daily basis, I manage the advertising efforts of several clients on Meta through an agency, Next Level Web. We had been running digital ads since 2009 and have many satisfied customers. It's a job I take very seriously. <laughs> Ever since I submitted my first campaign for review, I've done my absolute best to abide by each and every one of Meta's policies. I've read through them thoroughly several times to ensure compliance. I've even completed several blueprint courses. Yesterday, I received a message. You're restricted from advertising. You can't run ads or manage ad accounts. No, no. Honest, it caught me by surprise because, as I stated, I've always given my everything to be in absolute compliance with your policies. I'm thankful that other members of our team can still manage their clients' accounts so we can ensure they continue to have a positive experience with Meta and their ads are not disrupted. Now, if I'm not mistaken, these decisions are preceded by some very advanced AI technology at Meta. And so for this reason, I thought it might be valuable to have a human being's perspective on this. Truth be told, I'm not sure what caught the algorithm's attention because so far I've simply been running ads as I've always have been for my clients and never encountered this issue. Mm. And no further information as to what policy I had been violated was given to me. But I was hoping that perhaps you could tell me what triggered the decision. At this point, I don't know if I have any hope, but you should know that I will do my very best to comply with your policies every single day if you were to recover my access. Looking forward to hearing back from you. Oh, All the best <laughs> and love, Sean. <laughs> uh, well, how can I ignore that? <laughs> I know. Um, unrelated to my, my ban today, just with a billing issue. I've noticed that the meta billing customer support is like instant. As soon as you start touching their money, it's like they're instantly like contacting you. Hey, let's, let's fix this problem. So we had a client that had like a, an invoice issue. And I kind of resolved that. I got to a point where as far as I could, and I was like, oh, by the way, I'm like, I'm restricted on my ad accounts. And I discovered that when Facebook rec understands that you're an agency, 
they would actually jump on a, a, a call with you. So I actually was able to talk to a human being, which was really great. I was able to explain. And she, to be honest, she, she couldn't help me with much, but it was, I appreciated being able to talk to a human because you often feel like you've kind of thrown something out in the void. You don't know what's happening with it. But she essentially told me that I had done everything I could do. You know, I, I have two-factor authentication. I have, you know, email alerts when logins from different places occur. She said that my messages were very well written. <laughs> um you know i kind of did everything i i could and you know but i I did appreciate her uh, talking to me but it's i don't know if are you guys familiar with the the animation series avatar the legend of ang yeah in the show there's this uh city called like bossing say and it's um basically like a controlled like the big earth city yeah that's big earth city and when they enter the city they're met with this sort of ambassador who's like their chaperone her name's Judy, and she's kind of like brainwashed. She's really like, hi, I'm also- Judy. And she's got like scripted answers. And that's kind of like talking to face- the Facebook staff. They're so <laughs> they're trying so hard not to say something out of step <laughs> that they can like yeah. keep keep to the script. That kind of feels like you're talking to like this person who's like reading from a script. <laughs> Lovely people, but it's kind of like it's kind of intense. <laughs> like one step up from a bot. Yeah. <laughs> like you'll you'll link an issue that or you'll link a, a something you found in their support forums and say, I looked through this, I did all of these things. And then the <laughs> next thing they respond is, have you looked at this helpful article? You don't know if you're talking to a human because sometimes, it, I think sometimes it is humans, but sometimes it's clearly bots. I mean, one time I was talking to Facebook support and I, I shared it and I was like, what's the issue? And I just shared a screenshot it's like, and like highlighted the issue, like the warning prompts, like, oh, it's this. It's like, what's the issue? It's like, it's in the screenshot. <laughs> what screenshot? This one, like I send it again. So I don't see it. Like it's like literally right there. You're clearly a bot. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's interesting because I've dealt with this a number of times, and we've had clients that have dealt with this a number of times. And there are a couple of so first of all, news to me is that if I make it clear that I'm an agency and that I want to talk to somebody on the phone, I can, which is yeah. cool. Sadly, it doesn't help anybody else listening to this, or most of the people listening to this, uh, at, at least. But if you work with us, we can actually get somebody on the phone. It's kind of nice. Two things that help a lot. Number one is don't be a terrorist. Uh, <laughs> number two is have redundancy. So what I learned when I was banned and had that 48-hour scare, I actually my wife's Facebook account was also deactivated. And, you know, because Facebook is the devil. And so I reactivated the account, made her an admin, and then deactivated the account because it has so much history that mm-hmm. you can reactivate and it's like hey a real person is reactivating their account which yeah you know and same with um, my wife's account yeah and i've actually never had issues with that so and it, it's it annoying because when my wife reactivated her account she had to verify her id took 30 minutes yeah and i'm <laughs> like they told me it would take 48 hours and what we're on day three and still hasn't been verified so. <laughs> yeah it's uh yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty crazy and what they'll do is they will happily keep taking your money though it doesn't do anything to the ad account so thank you know thankfully our company we have redundancy i'm in there i can make changes sean was actually sending me messages for things that he wanted changed you know it's like just in case i'll write up a thing just you know if i can't access so we have multiple staff members that can access our accounts and whatnot but mm-hmm. uh but yeah it, it can get really scary and so there's another way that you can solve this problem. If, if it's just you by yourself and if it's a really big deal and it's very timely, go buy an Oculus. As you mentioned, Sean, the billing, <laughs> if, if you talk to Facebook billing, 
they resolve issues quickly. So if your Facebook account is restricted from advertising and you buy an Oculus, we're talking about the VR headset that's like 200 and change. I think a new one is coming out next next month or something. You will not be able to log into Oculus. Your Facebook account is restricted and they will fix that for you. So wow. it is the fastest way to fix your ad account right now is to go buy an Oculus and then have them wow. um, fix that billing problem. It'll what fix your ad I feel like so many of those big organizations, they just have too many people to deal with for you to for you to possibly handle things. I've no. never I've never been banned or restricted from Facebook, but I've had it happen on Google Ads. Um, mm -hmm. Google Google and I apparently are not very tight, I guess. And yeah, it took like well over a week because we were a pretty small account, and they did, to their credit, wind up resolving everything, and there was no problem. But it was a completely inexplicable ban. I never really got answers as to why it happened in the first place. And I think really the only reason is because my marketing manager for the Indie Game Academy is from uh, Venezuela. And yeah. so they noticed an account from outside of the U.S. and just immediately blocked mm -hmm. it. Yeah, yep. and that's why we get run to some issues sometimes because, you know, my IP is from the U.K. and a lot of our clients in the U.S. and it's a U.S. company. So I think there's like this, the AI can't think critically. So it's yeah. like, this is suspicious, man. Yep. <laughs> um, all those U.K. hackers. I um. <laughs> I find I find that to be super taxing when your Facebook account does get restricted. It's extremely taxing. But I'm, I mean, just if you don't remember anything else, or if your eyes glazed over during that whole conversation, and you or you skipped ahead, and you're just like uh, these these nerds talking about nerdy stuff, just have two factor authentication enabled, meaning that you need your cell phone and you need to put in a code from your cell phone to to access Facebook ads. That's a good thing to do. That solves like 90% of problems. In fact, I actually had one of my clients that uh, we, where we ran their ads, uh, I want to say a year ago for, for a game, they were running ads for a new game that's up and coming just, you know, for, uh, by themselves. And um, they ended up getting hacked. So the, uh, and this, this actually happened this, this week. And the reason that I noticed was because, you know, we have access to a lot of our clients will, you know, allow us to ma uh, maintain access to their accounts, their Facebook pages and whatnot, in case they use us again and whatnot. So um, the, we had a great relationship with this person. I actually do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and they do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And it's fun <laughs> to talk about that too. So we, we keep in communication just on, you know, kind of a friend basis as well. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I got three emails that was like, you are no longer a manager of the page. You are no longer a finance editor on the ad account. You Oof. are no longer, you no longer have access to the pixel. It was like, bam, bam, bam. And I just felt like my feelings were hurt at first. I'm like, what, what? We're friends. Um, and so I just reached out right away. I'm like, hey, uh, all of my access was revoked. You might be getting hacked. And that's exactly what happened. I found it in yeah. like three seconds that he was getting hacked. He ended up jumping on it right away. And thankfully they didn't, um, they didn't get very far, but yeah, but his account was uh, blocked. I mean, he got blocked from his own account and that kind of thing. And uh, to give you an idea of how gnarly it can be, I had the same thing happen with another client that um, was not, uh, you know, like before I had all of these measures in place to, to, you know, prevent all of this insanity, they got hacked for like two hours and 
that account had $4,600 spent in a two hour period. Wow. And to this day, that account, um, you know, they, uh, they didn't pay it. And that account is still blocked because they owe $4,600. Um, they created a new account and it's fine now, uh, mm -hmm. you know, but they, it was, it was gnarly, you know, so, that's rough. Yeah. So, so definitely factor authentication will solve you a lot of problems. So let's get into our topic at hand because I, I'm, I'm actually very interested in the insight that you have, but uh, which, uh, so our topic at hand is how to market video games. Before we really dive into that topic, I'd love, Willem, if you would share a little bit about your background as to why you're qualified to uh, chat about this stuff with us. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, hello, I am Willem. Uh, I'm Willem Dubenthal. I'm the headmaster and founder of the Indie Game Academy. Um, so we're a gamified online bootcamp for game devs. We are, uh, it's really, it's meant to be this really fun, ridiculous environment. Noticed this whole when I was teaching like classic engineering bootcamps for people where it felt like what new people trying to break into the industry actually lacked was not those technical skills. Cause you can go, you can go get that on YouTube, watch, you know, 12 YouTube videos and understand how to program a game. Um, but instead was the actual like team integration, working with an actual multidisciplinary team like you do in a real studio on a real project. And then the ability to actually release something. So we specialize in having a lot of fun and teaching people the production and game design skills they need to actually publish and monetize a game. So we've had 60 something students come through our doors so far in our larger program, which is a three month long bootcamp. We're just about two years old now and hundreds come through our smaller ones. I do a lot of other stuff though. So I'm also a senior game designer over at Together Labs. We're building a friendship first metaverse for young women. And I am the founder of the, uh, one of the co-founders of the Delve Bros, which is an independent game studio that makes whimsical and unconventional games that I have hired all of you to help work with me before. Yeah, so it's, it's really cool because the Delbros are your brothers. They, they're your, yes. your kin. So it's yes. pretty cool that you're all in the same industry. And it's, yeah. can you maybe just tell our listeners about the, the benefits and disadvantages of the kind of relationship? <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Uh, benefits? Um, I don't know. Let's start with the disadvantages. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a lot of fun. I, especially at the beginning when we were going through the ideation phase, which is, is just like my favorite part of game development by far. It's one of the, one of the, one of the greatest things I have the privilege of being able to do as a game designer. All of that was a heck of a lot of fun, but I will say that once it really got into the grind of it um, and when, when things started getting hard, uh, it was very challenging to balance the personal relationship with the work relationship. Um, and I think to this day, the relationship is not quite the same, whether for positive or negative things. I think it's just, it's a lot easier to tell somebody who you don't have such an intimate relationship with that you think they're wrong than someone who you have known since you were zero years old. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, uh, I have a similar challenge with my wife mm -hmm. who is my, you know, play tester number one and is very willing to tell me when something's wrong. It's just my problem is more that I get quite stubborn and I don't listen like I should um, <laughs> because yeah. she tends to be right so often. And then I come to this conclusion like two months later, like two months down the road, it's like, why didn't I would have saved myself so much heartache and headache? You know? Oh yeah, she was right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. So we have, I'm the youngest of three brothers, and then we have a younger sister who promptly refused to work with us when we offered. Um, so <laughs> it, it is just the three brothers. Um, 
Uh, so I'm the youngest. There's one in between named Eli. He is, uh, he's been working in the game industry longer than I have. He's primarily engineering management. And then uh, our oldest brother, Zach, who's uh, interestingly enough, largely like crypto and engineering as well. And Eli... So he's banned on Facebook for sure. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, that that classic human egotism, I've always thought that I'm like the most level-headed, level-headed of the three brothers. I'm not. Um, it's Eli all the way. He's the one who handles all of the conflict. And I just uh, get mad at my oldest brother, mostly. That's my job. <laughs> I, I suppose the advantage, you probably have a unspoken language by this stage you you know yeah. you, you spend so much time together and you also know all each other's i suppose influences and, and that type of thing so you probably yeah. i'm sure it, when it comes to idea generation it probably is, is quite fruitful i don't I, the way you do things i find is, is really great you gamify a lot of things which i think it's really smart and one thing i'd like like to um, maybe hear your thoughts on is this public pitching idea that you did i know andrew had the privilege of being a judge I yeah. unfortunately couldn't attend. It's a bit late for me. I really want to see the, the VOD if you have a recording of it. I think it's, yeah. it's a, but anyway, it's a really, really neat idea. Maybe just tell people what that's about and how did that come, how did that come to be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love pitching. It is one of my favorite things in the world. Um, it's just like, a, I don't know exactly how I got so connected to it. Um, my parents are both uh, acting professionals in the theater world. So they are, they spent a ton of time on stage and I naturally spent a lot of time on stage as well when I was younger. So maybe that's where it got started. When I was 14, I did a, uh, not when I was 14, in 2014, um, I did a pitch contest at the Rhode Island Business Convention and wound up winning first place, a, a, a whopping $250 with an oh. idea called New Notes, which was... Uh, uh, e-cards, online cards, but games that you could customize and send to each other. So actually little playable experiences where your messages get you know conveyed to the person who's playing. And I think just ever since then, I've just loved to get up on stage and talk about what I'm working on and like immediately get feedback as a result. And I think one of the things that it does above all else, and I talk about this a lot with my students, is it is one of the most uh, like tangible or direct ways for you to practice self-advocacy. Mm -hmm. um, I say all the time that whatever you're working on, whether it be a video game or something else entirely, the, the person who's got to believe in it the most is you. You are the holder of belief. And if you don't think this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, nobody else is going to. And so for me, the, the pitch, being able to pitch, whether it's professionally up on a stage or whether it's just with a couple of people who are interested in what you're working on, is a pivotal way for you to practice that self-advocacy, being able to say, this is awesome. You know, I, I want to interrupt yeah. you real quick, because, and yeah, I yeah. don't want to get off of this topic. So as I tangent away, please, let's get back to IGA and what you did at that pitch night. Yeah. It's, it was incredible. I, I have so much positive to say about that. But <laughs> the idea of pitching and the way that you just described it, it, it is, especially when you get into like engineers, people that make stuff that are just very, very left-brained and making a thing a lot of the time when you know in my marketing career when i've interfaced with people like this they you know actually this last week i had uh one of our prospective clients that wants to hire us has spent over eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars on uh, themselves and two other engineers and in a you know doing a, a pretty big app development and they have and nobody knows about it at all no, not even their mom, probably. They have an investor and they've been spending a lot of money and burning through a lot of cash, you know? And so then they were like, they, they come to me and they're like, all right, it's almost done. Now we're ready to market it. <laughs> so, 
oh man, what a lost opportunity because as you were working on that thing, you could have been building an email list with friends and family and others that, that like on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever place you go, you could have been talking about this thing and certainly don't talk about it before you're, you know, before you feel like you're far enough ahead that people can't just run past you or whatever. But, you know, I understand keeping it private for a little while, but don't wait until it's done in order to market it, you know? And when you're talking about pitching, what I really hear is you're, you're marketing to a friend or a family member or even a professional, yeah. you know, in a professional setting. This is very important. And yeah. the I think it's going to make can... people quite introspective because before you pitch, you're going to say, well, what if someone says this and how would I answer? So it kind of makes you go back to the drawing board even before you present it. And that process itself would be very, very beneficial in your game development. So mm-hmm. I think that's a neat idea. Yeah. Yeah, I think the um, the concept of waiting to showcase what you've got has always has always been one that I that I that I firmly stand against. Um, there's a quote by Guy Kawasaki that I love, which is, uh, "If you uh, if you aren't embarrassed by what you're showing, you've waited too long to show it." Oh, love great. that! So good. Um, you know, they're just uh, as a game designer. You know, first and foremost, I am a game designer, and as a game designer, I I believe that 100 of the time, my design will be wrong. Um, it, it just inevitably, until I get some, a real person's eyes, thoughts, and feelings on a, on a topic, whether it's an entirely new game concept or whether it's, you know, something more specific, a boss fight or something, I'm just not going to design that in a way that works for people. Because when we, when we create things, we create things from our own perspective. And if you aren't bringing other people into that fold as early as you can, then you're building a game for yourself and your target market is yourself, which is a sample size of one, which is not going to get you many sales. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Maybe your mom, I don't know. Um, So yeah, I, I heartily agree. As, as far as the IJ pitch night, to, to get back on it, yeah, uh, Andrew was good enough to me to come and be a judge at the fourth biannual IGA pitch night. The pitch night, as a result of me loving pitch nights, pitches in general, and loving that self-advocacy and being able to practice, you know, really talking about why you're so awesome and why your game is so awesome. The very first time we ran this three-month program, we knew that we wanted some way for the to, to celebrate the students the like celebration culture is also something I really believe in and just doing like a showcase or something, you know, sort of the standard stuff that boot camps do just sounded so boring. And I don't remember exactly the moment that I thought of doing a, a live pitch. Um, but we tried it with that very first cohort and had, you know, like 20 people or something, mostly just personal family show up to watch it. But it was really obvious that in that first moment that this was not only really cool, the students got a lot out of it. They felt really hyped up and like passionate about their own games, but that this moment, this actual event could become something that is important to the game industry. Like it was really, it was just fun. And people left, you know, the judges we had that first time left excited to talk to us and talk to these students. Um, And I think, you know, you got to see it, Andrew. Uh, it's only growing and getting more epic. We had about 100 people watching through our various platforms this time. That first time was like 20. And some of the judges were, you know, quite reputable. And some of the feedback we got was quite reputable. And the students just knocked it out of the park. So yeah, I love I love pitching. All of you should pitch. Find places where you can pitch. Uh, and it doesn't have to be big professional spaces. It can just be to some friends or somebody who you think is cool. You also had a sort of a, a gamified chat room, right? We had a little avatar you could run around as well. I- yep. I, I saw that and I thought that was a really neat idea. Maybe tell people a little bit about what that is. And Yeah. Yeah. So an area of study that I really love is gamification, which is just the uh, the way I define it is the application of game design to non-game systems. 
So you know the the ways that we the ways that we motivate people to play a game is the is the same ways that we motivate people to do basically anything else. So we knew we wanted the indie game academy to feel like a real space. You know, got the metaverse metaverse vibes on it. Um, and a, a little over a year ago, we ran into a platform called Gather. If anyone is uh, familiar with that, Gather.town is what you'd actually type in to go check it out. Um, but it's essentially like imagine old school like eight bit or sixteen bit era graphics where you have a little character, a little persona who walks around a virtual space, and you can actually edit and create this virtual space. I had recently hired. Uh, our community manager, and I told her about Gather. And during one of our sprint planning sessions, she goes, hey, I have something to show you. And we just log into this like beautiful castle common room <laughs> that she's made with this platform. And you know, part of the reason she got hired is because she also believes in this sort of just like fun-loving attitude and approach we have at the Indie Game Academy. And it's just, I don't know, it's grown from there. It's its marvelous. It's a little expensive for what we use it for, but um, it adds such a vibe to it, even though the majority of the time it's like you walk to a virtual seat and then you just sit there and watch a video conference anyway. Like it doesn't even, it doesn't actually change things that much. But just that action of walking through a real space and seeing, you know, people's art up on the walls and like arcade cabinets in the corners and like pool tables and stuff before you get to that virtual stage is just like it adds something intangible and magical that I think um, just a video call doesn't. Yeah, it kind of you know, taps into other... like a MMORPG kind of vibe, you know, where you're all kind of corrugating and, and chatting and trying to yeah. fix a problem. So it's, yeah, I think it's neat. It was funny. It, it, in a way, I guess, on that front, it kind of reminded me of hanging out in Iron Forge near the That's exactly house. what I was thinking. Outside the auction <laughs> yeah. house, just jumping on your mount, you know, waiting yeah. for the battleground to start or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what we want. Yeah. In addition to that, I felt like, um, you know, a lot of the time when you're doing a video conference, it's quite easy and tempting to sometimes answer an email or, you know, whatever, and you lose your, the, the conference loses your attention. Yeah, I found it, number one, as a judge of the conference, it was very important to me to give of myself to those that were pitching to me. I wanted to remain present. And I think, you know, for the most part, people that are that do video conference things, they want to remain present. But Gather allowed me to fiddle at the same time. You know, I was able to fiddle with my avatar as I was listening. And that actually helped because I can't. Yeah it's still you know and i think it, it ties into that nostalgia too because it's got it's got the perfect art style for me like kind it's, of chrono trigger a little yeah exactly oh yes oh, i'm so <laughs> glad that that's the example you used yeah it just it, it, RPG. yeah <laughs> it's this space we all created together there was a there was a moment if we're talking about like just gamifying and making making spaces wonderful we gave our students so our, our school is absolutely inspired by hogwarts we have four magical houses House Warrior, House Rogue, House Cleric, and House Ranger. And those houses work together to make these games. So because this is the first time we used Gather for our castle, we allowed these students to build their own common rooms. And another day we get on with the team and Jess goes, hey, I have to show you something, our community manager. And we follow her to the first common room that one of these groups created. And it was, first of all, like bigger than the rest of the castle. <laughs> and second of all, like it had all these beautiful little spaces. There was literally an entire like ship, like Spanish galleon that I don't know where they got these art assets, but it was like in this room, you could go climb onto the mast and stuff. And it just, it's amazing. Yeah. It adds to the magic. I think that magic is what I'm always chasing, you know? That is cool. And, you know, I guess in taking this concept of gamifying, I yeah. think it's, it's quite important to gamify marketing as mm -hmm. well. Right. I mean, we're 
trying to get somebody interested, gain their attention and keep it and get them to care about what it is that, you know, we, we have to sell them in, in essence, you know, depending on how you think about that, it could feel like you're a dirty used car salesman trying to get somebody to buy something they don't need. Uh, but really I think the best marketing to me takes somebody on a journey Mm -hmm. and it's not really about getting them to buy something that they don't need. It's simply about showing them something wonderful. Yeah. In, in a way, as you had used the word celebrate mm-hmm. as one of your core tenants, I really valued a lot. And it actually influenced the way that I gave feedback and everything. The concept of celebration mm-hmm. in the Indie Game Academy, that was very, very cool. And is it, by the way, it was a great, you know, I'm sure it was a really great experience for all those, all those students, but it probably gave all of the introverts a lot of relief because they're not going to be slammed for something that didn't work, something that was a, bu- a clear bug or whatever. They're not going to be like, well, that, yeah, that particular part really stunk about your project. No, we always frame in a positive way to celebrate. But the concept of celebration, I think, is one that really makes marketing sing when you do it right, because you're, you want to show people why your game is awesome but you're not necessarily asking people to buy it right now. You're just wanting to show them so that they'll get more information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that there are certain elements of, of a product that need to be celebrated and showcased and others that maybe at first we, we think, Hey, this is the cool aspect of my project, but in, in actuality, it's something completely different, you know, with deliverance uh, it's a tabletop game, but I, thought that the custom angels were really cool. The the fact that you could give them more abilities and whatnot through talent cards. And actually I I remember playing with Sam Healy, who's a big kind of board game influencer for the dice tower at the time. He looked at the character card and he said to me, I like how all my actions are contained on this one card. And you know, they're different for every angel, but I didn't really, I never really thought of it like that. A lot of games will give you a, you know, you can move, you can attack, you can, you know, jump or whatever, but then here are additional special actions on your character card. And you have to look at a quick reference card and the rule book and your character card just to see what the heck you can do on a turn. Mm -hmm. It showed me through pitching in essence, it showed me what mattered to that person who is my target market about my project. And so you know, as, as you kind of try to celebrate, you'll see things that people that resonate with people and then other things that maybe don't, and that will help you kind of refine your pitch, won't it? Yeah. I really, I really like that. I think, so this is going to, it's going to be off topic a little bit, but then we're going to come back to marketing to go back to the self-advocacy again. And to go back to the game design that I was talking about a little bit earlier, I fully expect that pretty much anything I design will not be right out of the gate. And I think something that you have to pay attention to in in marketing is how to talk about your project in a way that elicits excitement and emotion from other people. So when I, one of my other startups that that unfortunately never really made money was uh, Mew and Me. It was video games for cats that track what they're doing and teach you more about them. <laughs> and we, you know, at first I'm thinking like, oh, these are like the smartest cat games ever. Or like, these are the, these are the first games to like, uh, you leave at home or you know, all these different things. And ultimately what people got the most excited about was the the concept of us being a window into the, into the cat's emotions, a, a window into who this cat is. Why does my cat do X? 
is the main question we got all the time, you know, and it would be the weird, random weird stuff cats do, you know, the chittering when they see a bird or whatever. Um, and so I think like, if I return to that project, I would absolutely make it more about being a cat advisor, you know, being a trusted knowledge source of how cats behave and why they behave that way. And a lot less, like it might not even be games. Um, and that would wind up not being a project I was very excited about, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known that without taking a couple, I mean, in this case, years worth of stabs into marketing, but you know, I wouldn't have known that without paying attention and listening to who my users are and what actually sings to them. Cause what yeah. sings to you is going to be different than what sings to them. Uh, some people that I know will use the terminology, find the fun. Mm -hmm. um, every game has I, I think at least every game that I've encountered, whether it's a proto, well, most prototypes that I, that I look at, I'm like, okay, I see what this game is trying to be. And, you know, with Deliverance, I, you know, in the beginning, it was just cardboard and, and minis that I stole from my War of the Ring, um, <laughs> no copy. And I was like, all right, I'm, it's angels and demons and blah, 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 even though you're a dwarf with a hammer as like your, your main character, right? People would say, it just feels like pushing cubes around on a board. I don't feel like an angel. And, and my uh, emphasis to them was, you know, I asked how, how do we make it feel more like that? Mm -hmm. And I kind of wanted it to be that, but people also wanted it to be that. And the game eventually became more of what it was. And I think that every game has the, uh, you know, the kind of the core of the game, it, what it wants to be. And you have to kind of find that through marketing, find that through pitching, find that through playtesting and yeah. so on and so forth. But uh, a lot of the time people can impose their ideas on what they need the game to be, right? Mm -hmm. um, in the case of that cat project, that's, that was fascinating <laughs> to me. It actually is not about the game. The core of that project is not about the game, which, you know, of course, might mean that it's not something worth pursuing or, or is, but it was a fascinating little segment we were on the whole learning a whole learning opportunity i think the other the other part of it is you know you will discover i guess have either of you ever carved stone <laughs> or, or any kind of carving i guess any any reductive I've art done whittling. there you go yeah whittling so there's a, a saying in, in reductive art forms where you're taking a large piece and reducing it down to something that you're finding the the sculpture on the inside you're not really planning it it sort of becomes something and it, it knows what it wants to be before you start and i think this same is absolutely true for games and therefore by extension game marketing but i, I think that's a lot of what we were just saying it's a that's that's more of the same in addition to that though is that there's you can feel the indescribable joy that a creator has for their own project. Back when Doom was getting made, you know, the the Doom team locked themselves in an office that they blacked out all the all the windows in and they put up like satanic paraphernalia and blasted death metal while they were making the game. And that's because they wanted to be there in that emotional space that they felt made sense for this game. Started sacrificing out, chickens? <laughs> yeah, probably. Sacrificed a goat now and then. Um, <laughs> Stardew Valley, another great example. Like when you pick up Stardew Valley, all the stresses wash away and you just, you know, you're, you're in this like beautiful space. And I'm sure a lot of that was through playtesting and iteration and talking to real people. But a lot of that too was just the guy who made it, you know, being, being in the emotional space that he was in and being genuine and, and, and putting his own essence into the, into the project and into the marketing. So, you know, when you talk about doom, if you were, if you were the original creators, if you're George Romero, when you talk about doom, don't talk about doom in a way that you think, is going to be the best way to market, market Doom. Talk about Doom in the way that makes you feel like Doom is supposed to feel. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think theme is so critical theme and the, who am I? Why should I care? What am I doing? Those are three questions. I think no matter what game it is, we need to answer because as people, humans, we need to have context for why we do things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you put a stick in someone's hand and say, walk down this hallway. The first question is like, why? What's waiting for me in the hallway? Is it, you know, in essence, is it a horror? If I told you a zombie apocalypse just happened, here's a stick, walk down the hallway. Now you have context. You know, you, you are a survivor. Your goal is to survive and you're probably going to find zombies down that way or, you know, guns or ammo or whatever. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it makes it much more interesting. And I think that some games really appeal to a core segment of, you know, of users just based on the theme alone. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I, and I think that does tends for me, it does better than marketing mechanics mm-hmm. by far every, every, in every case. So Willem, I want to get your thoughts on this. We often hear people, particularly in the board game space of, well, how can I compete on Kickstarter when you ha- have these big publishers, you have almost, it seems like they have infinite budgets for marketing and game development, and they're really just using Kickstarter as a, a pre-sale and how can I compete against them? And I think this is probably even more so a case in the video game industry, right? Where you have <laughs> literal billion dollar studios who have huge teams and can create phenomenal products. How, how does someone as an independent game developer stand out in the video game space these days? Yeah, that one's hard. I think that there's, there's a lot of stuff that you can actually do. And there's a lot of advice I think to be given in this realm. I, I think a, I think a big part of what you need to do a big part of what I believe in anyway, this is a little bit biased is come up with a concept that has its own niche, basically find a niche that actually works for you and that you believe that there is an audience for and do a little bit of research to convince yourself more than anybody else that there is an actual audience for it. I find that so many, especially fresh game developers who are relatively new to the space sort of pick the first good idea or the first idea they think is good. The first thing that kind of gets them excited and then they spend the next like four years building it. So I think a, a quick piece of advice I can give you is just actually spend the time to do your research and to do some testing, don't just build the first game. You should be, you know, you should come up with like 50 ideas, filter those ideas down to a couple, prototype two or three of them, test them with real people, and then actually pick your idea from that. So that's one of the first things I can say. Don't just commit to the first thing. Find a game that actually seems to have an audience. Post that, I think you want to be, a lot of this advice is going to be advice that I learned from you two. So (laughs) might be a bit repetitive, but you need to be marketing as soon as possible and consistently. And you need to be banking the term as the terminology you guys would use. You need to be banking those people who care about this game as soon as possible. You should be proud and excited about partial successes as well. So I think like, like something that happened for me, Tailmore is the game that Delbros released and we successfully funded on Kickstarter first board game any of us had ever worked on. So, you know, we could only really be proud of that, but we made a lot less money than we hoped to. And at first that was really crushing. You know, it was, we had, uh, I think the actual internal goal that we had was like three times as high as what we made. And so we were all like, ah, this is a failure. But ultimately we got to publish a board game and ship it to real people and start building an audience. So I think- Not only that, you're also proving a concept because it was very unique in that you sort of were merging technology with the board game space. So you had a- an additional challenge that most board game publishers don't have to face. So you really had to overcome that massive power objection. So I think it was a huge accomplishment. 
Thank you. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. That's, uh, that's another piece of advice. Um, you don't need to invent something brand new. I've, this is the lesson I'm still learning. Take something that exists that people know and love and then tweak it just a little bit. <laughs> 10%, 10% tweak. doesn't need to be a hundred percent new. So yeah, I think, uh, come up with, uh, find yourself a niche and do your research to determine if that's actually a niche. So that mostly involves talking to real people and play testing with real people. Um, so you can prototype some games really quickly, just put together some like paper prototypes. It doesn't need to be a full digital thing that you spent weeks on and test with people until you've got a pretty good understanding of what people love. Mew and me didn't quite work. I think that was largely because of my own inexperience, but just for context, like one of those moments that made, made me go, oh, there's a market for this. The first time we brought it to a convention, we went from like 50 or so beta testers that were my personal friends to, to like 500. Um, You know, 450 people in a single weekend signed up to be our beta testers because they were like, what the hell is this? I want to be involved. So so look for those little like magic moments. uh, And then once you've found a couple of them, then commit to that project and then start banking your followers as soon as possible and involve them in that process of ideation and generation as soon as possible. And I think finally, just understand that it takes time. You know, I tell more if we keep working on that, we can turn that into a, a real substantial IP. And it's, that's partly because there's nothing quite like it. And it's not tens of thousands of followers right this second, but it could be. And it just involves the dedication and consistency to get it there, I think. Yeah, I, I think about, there, there are a couple of examples that I can think of that uh, illustrate that point very well. One, I can't remember the name, but it was kind of a red versus blue type game that was more about figuring out like how people move and what patterns they, you know, how, how they travel physically. Um, they made this red versus blue game that was, I, gosh, I'm sure that a bunch of people on this podcast are going to know Tron, what I'm talking about. Tron. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it became Pokemon Go. Wow. Is what oh, so, uh, damn it. I do know the name. Yeah. So it's with an I. <laughs> right. Ver- well, version one to version two. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got, you know, the Warcraft 3 mod Defense of the Ancients hmm. became eventually League of Legends. Yeah, Riot Games is one of the biggest companies in video games right now. It also became Dota 2, which you know we won't talk about. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think I'm a I'm a you know business dork as well as being a gamer dork. And when you talk about um, when you look at the qualifying factors of whether or not a startup will succeed, the number one factor is timing and length in the market. Um, you know, you can you can start a business, have no idea what you're doing, make zero sales for your first three years, and if you keep doing it, you're gonna find people. Sorry, Ingress is the Pokemon yes. guy. Okay. I with an eye. Yeah, Ingress. Cool. So, um, Willem, what uh, advice would you give to somebody looking to launch a game on Steam? You know, what advice would you give, or what would you want to say that we haven't yet talked about? Um, any concluding remarks? Yeah, I think. Um... I think there's a couple things to say. Uh, I, I think like you really have to make sure that you are actually enjoying it. Um, I have always had a struggle with destination versus journey. Um, you know, f- figure out a way so that it your enjoyment isn't tied to a massive Kickstarter success. Your enjoyment isn't tied to hundreds of thousands of dollars and being able to quit your job. Um, enjoy the process because if you aren't enjoying the process, you're going to be miserable 95% of the time even if you do succeed. Um, it just takes time to put t- uh, games together and it takes time to put a community together. Um, as far as releasing something on Steam, yeah, I think that first piece of advice is one of the biggest ones that I have found is useful 
uh, actually spend the time to go through a validation process for the game you're going to build because you're going to be working on that thing for years. So, you know, take like two months, three months to really go through a solid ideation phase, try out a couple of different prototypes, test it with as many people as you can from a diverse group of people um, before actually committing to something. That's one of my big ones. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's no good to work super hard on something when you're running headlong in the wrong direction. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, well, thank you so much, Willem. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you for spending the time with us to talk about um, really all the, all the things, you know, we oh, started with a topic and then we just kind of moved into, I mean, some really fundamental pillars of marketing. So it was a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Love working with you too. I'm sure we'll do more in the future. We'll have you back on the uh, IGA lunch hour sometime soon. Uh, All kinds of other stuff. All right. So um, lastly, how can people find more information about you? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I am most active on LinkedIn. Uh, So you can look me up, Willem Delventhal, W-I-L-L-E-M-D-E-L-V-E-N-T-H-A-L on LinkedIn and uh, come check me out there. Uh, If you want to look at some of my projects, so we do run a podcast that both Andrew and Sean were on called the IGA Lunch Hour. You can look that up. It's on all the platforms. And then uh, IndieGameAcademy.com is where you can learn more about Badass Little School. (laughs) Heck yeah. All right. And then I'm going to pull Richard out of the closet and he's going to send us out. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.